Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 8. We have been making our way through Acts for a few months now, and for those who were here last Sunday, the first martyr of the Christian faith was Stephen, and we listened to his, we thought through his, his message that he gave to the Sanhedrin before he was uh, brutally killed by stoning. And today's passage picks up right after Stephen has been killed, and it it is about the gospel uh, reaching Samaria, the gospel reaching Samaria. So I'm going to read through today's passage, and then we'll work back through it in a little bit more, uh, a little bit more slowly and carefully. And this is the word of the Lord. This is Acts chapter eight, verses one through seventeen. And Saul approved of his Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Lord willing, next Sunday we will pick up and focus a lot more on this strange figure, Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. We'll talk more about him again next Sunday, but today we will focus on this beginning section here in Samaria. I've got three points, and they all start with the phrase, the surprising way. So, three points. Number one, we are going to be seeing here as the gospel first reaches Samaria, the surprising way, number one, the gospel gets to Samaria. The surprising way, number two, Samaria responds to the gospel. And number three, the surprising way the Spirit is received in Samaria. I'll say those again. The surprising way, number one, the gospel gets to Samaria. The surprising way, two, Samaria responds to the gospel. And the surprising way, number three, the Spirit is received in Samaria. So we will start here at the beginning of our passage, the surprising way the gospel gets to Samaria. Verse 1 
through 3. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great, what? Persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here's, here's the first thing we see. The surprising way the gospel reaches Samaria is persecution. That's the surprising way that the gospel first leaves Jerusalem and Judea and gets north to Samaria. In fact, not just persecution, it's the first great persecution of the early church. So, have you all noticed the last month and a half, persecution keeps getting more intense? First time, what happens? The Pharisees and Sadducees, the high priests, they take the apostles in private and they say, stop talking about Jesus. And they threaten them and they let them go. Then they take them back again and they say, stop talking about Jesus. This time, we think of, they thought about killing them. They ended up not killing them. They ended up flogging them. They, they whipped them. And then they let them go bloody and beaten and they left rejoicing. And then a little more time goes by. They get their hands on Stephen. Maybe they picked Stephen because he wasn't one of the 12 who were most loved and most popular. They picked Stephen who's also preaching the gospel and doing signs and wonders, they pull him aside, they put him before the Sanhedrin, he preaches a powerful message with the, full of the Spirit and grace, says some harsh words, but has the face of an angel full of peace and grace, and they stone him to death. As he's being brutally killed, he prays for the salvation of his killers, just like the Lord Jesus did on the cross in Luke's first volume, Luke, the gospel of Luke. And then what happens? Saul who will later become the great Christian, the Apostle Paul, right now hates Christianity and hates Jesus' followers and begins to violently persecute the way, as they called it. And they drag off men and women from house to house and commit them to prison. And look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Now, this is not the time of the year to talk about weeds in your yard. It's really never the right time to talk about weeds. We can't be thinking about that right now. You, you all know the dandelion, right? That, that terrible thing. You know, what happens when the wind hits one of those? You see all those little seeds take off, right? They, they go flying and they go landing. What, what happens a little bit later on? You see a few more sprouting up, don't you? Because, uh, you know, my son loves to pick them up. My daughter, they'll blow on these things. You know, they all go flying off. And you think that you've destroyed it, right? It's, it's over, it's done, we took care of that weed, it's history. And what happens two weeks later, you look at your yard, and there's about a hundred of them. What is going on? Well, no doubt, this is exactly kind of the, thing, the, the kind of thing that happened. The leaders say, okay, remember there was this guy named Thutis claiming to be a Messiah. We crushed him, he was killed, and what happened? His followers were dispersed, and we never heard from them again. There was another guy, this Egyptian figure, and we crushed him. He was killed by the, by the leaders, and his followers, a few hundred, were scattered, never to be heard of again. But when the Holy Spirit is really behind the movement, something else happens when the leader is killed. You kill Jesus, the leader, not only does he resurrect, but then you kill one of his followers, and he's buried. But what happens? Like those little seeds spreading out all over the place, what you did was you took Jerusalem, where tens, over 10,000 believers are, and you killed the first one and started imprisoning others. And what happens? The believers are forced out by the hundreds. And suddenly, oh no, 
Not what we were anticipating the leadership would say, and Satan no doubt would have wanted. Instead of smothering out the church, you've heard this quote, the blood of the martyrs is what? The seed of the church. And what happens here is, the harder they are attacked, the more Christianity begins to spread. And now you've got hundreds of impromptu missionaries heading out of Jerusalem, heading through Judea, and now even crossing that unbelievable border into Samaria, and they are now preaching the Word. Don't think preaching the Word is, is necessarily they set up, you know, a podium and started preaching outside. This is, this is what one writer called gossiping the gospel. This is just people going around talking about Jesus wherever they go. And, you know, I heard uh, one pastor point out this week, you know, it's one thing for people who get paid, like they make their living telling people about Jesus. Now, I will admit, I am in that category, okay? I do. I, I make my living telling people about Jesus. So, you know, people, unbelievers could look at someone in my position and say, well, of course you're going to say that. If you don't say that, you don't have a job. So, of course you're going to talk about Jesus. You've got, a, you've got an ulterior motive, someone might assume. Well, I hope that's not the reason I am preaching Jesus, okay? But someone might think that. And so, you know what's really powerful is when the people who are not having any income from talking about Jesus are scattering and they can't stop talking about Jesus. It's when you have a friend, a coworker who just brings up Jesus almost in an annoying kind of way. They just are really preoccupied with the gospel and they're talking about it so often, you think, this person must really believe what they're saying. There's no other reason they would be talking about him. There's no paycheck, there's nothing, there's no strings attached here. All they're going to do is possibly make people think that they're strange. And that's not much of a fun thing to experience. Why are they talking so much about Jesus? And so, Luke, as this brilliant narrator, will state a general principle. Verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. That's the general truth. What are we used to Stephen doing? It, I mean, excuse me, Luke doing at this point? He zeroes in on one example, right? He'll state a general thing that's happening. Signs and wonders were being done. Now, let's talk about a healing at the temple door, right? He, he takes a general principle. He'll zoom in and give a narrative of one example. So, there were hundreds of people doing what Philip did here, but we get one specific story of Philip himself. Let me say something else before we keep moving. Stephen's sermon is, what, a couple days old at this moment? Stephen's sermon was the perfect precursor for this moment. Remember what Stephen said? We don't have to be at the geographical temple in Jerusalem to meet God. Didn't Abraham meet God in Babylon? Didn't Moses meet God in Mount Sinai at the burning bush far away from the promised land? You know, Moses never set foot in the promised land, and he met with God all the time. God doesn't need you to be in a certain location geographically to meet with Him. Did not Jesus say this to the Samaritan woman, speaking of Samaria? She said, our fathers worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Your fathers worship in Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Which is the right mountain? And Jesus says, listen, the day is coming and is now here where we will not worship on this mountain or that mountain. God the Father is spirit, and He is looking for those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not geography, but a heart attitude. That's what God is looking for. And so, Stephen's sermon is the perfect precursor for the gospel spreading all over the world like wildfire because now the temple presence of Jesus is within us by His Spirit, and the law of God is now being freed of some of its ceremonial uh, trappings like the sacrificial system, and now we find its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. And another thing we see here as the gospel is spreading to Samaria, notice 
where the apostles are, end of verse 1. So they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, that's the southern kingdom, Samaria, the northern kingdom, except the apostles. You know why I like this verse? None of us are apostles. Strangely alleviating, I think, because the way some of them had to die. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to not be an apostle. Uh, the, the apostles are home in Jerusalem. They're, they're going to continue to oversee the church there. So, you know, what, you know what that means? The explosion of the gospel that we're about to witness is by no names like you and me, not the apostles. That's freeing to me. It did not take the trained professional apostles coming down, those who knew the risen Jesus. They weren't even there. I mean, they show up later in the story. We'll talk about that. But Philip is not an apostle. And he goes about proclaiming Jesus, and he sees the city of Samaria come to trust Christ through his ministry, which should free us up to say, listen, we don't have to have some title. We don't have to be apostles. We don't have to be in that position. The Lord uses a lot of people. We will never even hear their names this side of heaven to get the gospel all over the Roman Empire and beyond. And that is what the Lord loves to do, using people like you and I. You know, the thought that, you know, history may not remember your name or, you know, those kinds of things, so what? God knows your name, God will use your life, and your life will have real and lasting consequences in this world with the people that you impact and the people you minister to and the people you are around, and not one cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus will lose its reward in God's eyes. We don't have to make history as long as God is aware and using us, that should be enough for us. So, the surprising way the gospel gets to Samaria is through persecution. And see if you notice something. Verse 1 says, great persecution arose. Verse 2 says, devout godly men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And verse 8 says, so there was much joy in the city. That Order is the Christian life. Great pain and suffering, great lamentation, and then what? Much joy. Isn't that, isn't that the rhythm of your life? You, you go through something really hard, and it is challenging, and there is lamentation. There are tears shed, whatever it may be, whatever trial or struggle, and this past year has been full of many different kinds of struggles and difficulties. There is great suffering, there is great lamentation. And yet, in the midst of it, there's great joy. Paul himself says we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. This is the paradox of being a Christian. In the midst of tears, we find deep joy. In the midst of sorrow and grief, we find the Spirit at work. Great persecution, great lamentation, great joy. That is so often the pattern of the Christian life. All right, let's look at point number two, the surprising way Samaria responds to the gospel. Now, before I read this passage, this section again, let me just remind you, now this is the history part. This is where three of you get really excited, and the rest of you say, I'll set my watch for four minutes until we're done. But just hang with me here, okay? I'm going to give you some facts. You probably know most of these facts, but just to refresh your memory, what's the significance of Samaria in biblical history? So, you know this. First king of Israel, Saul, then David unites the whole kingdom, 40-year reign. Then his son is Solomon, who reigns for 40 more years. After Solomon dies, remember his sons are fighting over control. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, all the Aboams are fighting against each other. And the kingdom splits. How many tribes go north? 
Ten tribes go north. How many are south? You've got two tribes, south, uh, Benjamin and Judah, and there were Levites scattered amongst all those. And so what happens is you have this tension building between the northern and southern tribes, what becomes Samaria and Judea. This tension gets worse and worse. In 722, remember a large kingdom arises, Assyria. They destroy the northern kingdom, and here's the really just uh, difficult part. Many of the people are taken out of their land, forced out of their land in exile, and scattered amongst the nations of Assyria, the sections of Assyria. And Assyria takes some other people and put them in the northern kingdom. So guess what happens? You have some Israelites, and you have a lot of foreign people who worship false gods, and they inevitably start to intermarry and have children. And the descendants of these half-Israelite, half-Assyrian people were the Samaritans. And they were known for something called syncretism, which is collecting multiple gods and religions and putting them all together and trying to worship Yahweh and other gods in their own way. Well, if you remember, the southern kingdom's destroyed by Babylon. Seventy years later, they come back, and then they begin to rebuild. You remember Ezra and Nehemiah are all about this. Nehemiah is trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and the Samaritans show up to try to, you know, mock them and to be engaged, and Nehemiah has to send them away, and the tension gets stronger around this time. The Samaritans build their own temple to compete up at Mount Gerizim in north. And this temple is there for quite a while, and then, this is really, you history people are going to, this is where you get, the Maccabean revolt happens, we won't go into this, and they create the Hasmonean dynasty, and there's, there's a king named John Hyrcanus, who's from the south, from Judea, he's a Hasmonean king, and what he does, he hates the Samaritans, he goes to war against them and destroys their temple in 128 BC, destroys the, the, the temple on Mount Gerizim. Well, as you can imagine, this made relations between the northern and southern even better, okay, at this point. And then Josephus tells a story that in the first century, when Jesus would have been a young child, uh, some Samaritans come down to the temple in Jerusalem at night, and they sneak in, and they throw dead bodies, well, bones, dead human remains into the temple at, to try to defile it ritually and ceremonially, and things just got better from there. Okay, so tensions were strong, okay? I mean, I, I, right now, Democrat-Republican gives you kind of a little bit of a taste. I would say turn the volume even way up on that, and you get a sense of, of, of Jews and Samaritans and the relationship that they, it, it would have been on the verge of bloodshed often, the tensions between these two different groups. So, imagine Jews going to Samaria and preaching the Jewish Messiah and you're just thinking, there's no way this ends well. This cannot end positively. There's no way, and something absolutely shocking begins to happen. Here's the surprising way the Samaritans respond to the gospel, verse 9. Well, let, let me start in verse 5, excuse me. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great." And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Just a few quick notes, and again, I want to talk more about Simon next Sunday, but we'll just say a few things. It says that the crowds paid attention. That, that word is used three times, paid attention. That's the same word used in, later in Luke 16. You remember Lydia, the seller of expensive fabrics? She hears Paul preaching, and it says the Lord opened her heart to, same word, give heed or pay attention to what was said by Paul, and she trusted Christ. So, let me just say this. Whenever Jesus, in a biblical way, is being talked about, and the audience, whether they're believers or not, are paying careful attention. They're leaning in. They want to know more. That is a very good sign. It is so easy for Jesus to come up in conversation and for people to do what? To change the, the, the topic, change the subject. This is it's just awkward because it's so immediately personal and often convicting. And so, a very good sign is when a brother of yours who's not a believer, a child of yours who's not a believer, or perhaps a relative, a grandparent, a co-worker, a roommate who's not a believer, when they start asking questions about the Bible, when they start leaning towards you when you talk about Jesus, when they have questions about Jesus in the gospel, that is a very good sign of the beginnings of a work of the Spirit of God in their life. And listen, if someone is leaning in and someone is paying attention, in that moment, we cannot fail to respond with prayer and love and with truth, giving them more and more of what we know to be true. It is a sign of God's Spirit at work that people give heed to the truth of Jesus. Now listen, previously they had given heed to Simon. You remember the three, well, we don't know how many there were, but the magi from the Christmas story, the, the wise men. A very similar related word here. Simon has been known in church history as Simon Magus, related word to Magi, uh, someone who was involved in the demonic, the occult. Uh, he would have been involved in, in satanic type of things. Uh, I don't know if what he was doing was magic tricks in the sense of sleight of hand and literal what we think of today as magic. Uh, you know, it's not real, but he tricks people. Or if he was really involved in demonic false miracles, which I tend to think is what was happening here, like you remember Pharaoh's court magicians, that they, I think they really turned those sticks into snakes in, 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 in the story of the Exodus. I, I think they were working with demonic false signs and wonders, and very likely Simon was doing something similar here, and they were paying attention to him, all of them, focused on him and what he could do. And when Philip shows up and does greater signs and wonders by the power of the true Spirit of God, the paying attention shifts focus. And, and again, this is a sign that the Spirit is at work. We are all focused on something, okay? It's probably not Simon the, mag the, the magician, okay? That's probably not where you're at today is I'm really into the occult. Perhaps if that is something that you're in, we can talk. I would love to talk to you after the service if you are into those kinds of things. That does happen, by the way. My mom grew up as a missionary kid in Africa, in the Congo, and uh, there were witch doctors right down the way from where my mom grew up doing, uh, you know, spells on other people. They would get paid money to, to issue curses in other, on other people nearby. And so, that's real stuff. It still happens today. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's real stuff. But that may not be your focus. But here's the thing. Whether you're a believer or not, 
we are paying attention to certain things in our life. In other words, our heart is knit to certain things. Our affections are tied to certain issues, certain topics, certain things that are happening. It's just honest assessment here. Don't think about anyone else. Think about you yourself. This past week since you were last here, what had the attention of your heart and soul more than anything else? What was on your mind? What had you captivated more than any other thought, any other topic, any other thing in your life the last seven days? Was the Lord Jesus at the top of that list or near the top of that list? Because if something other than the Lord Jesus absolutely has captivated our mind, whether it's money or a hundred other things, if, that is, if, if something other than Jesus is our primary focus of attention, I can already tell you the emotions that you felt this week. Because probably you either had pride connected to it, or anxiety connected to it, or discouragement connected to it, or on, or on, and on. Unbelief. Whatever may be going on, and we must think about many things in our life, and some have more severe trials than others right now, but listen, our eyes must be focused on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. We must focus on Him. We must pay heed to Him and to His gospel in order to achieve stability in this life. And, and I also want to say, while... Um, Another word about Samaria, and having mentioned this a few weeks ago, I'll just mention this briefly. Um, I have argued back earlier in Acts that Ezekiel 36 and 37, you don't have to turn there right now, is predicting this very scene. Tom Schreiner and others have pointed this out, I think, very convincingly. What you see in Ezekiel 36 and 37, instead of reading a lot of verses, let me just summarize, okay? So Ezekiel, hundreds of years before this moment, says... David is coming. Remember, this is after David has died. He says, David's coming. He means the Messiah, the son of David is coming. He will shepherd my people, Israel. Then he says, in those latter days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on my people. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my spirit on them. I'm going to forgive their sins. Then he says, there are two sticks. The northern kingdom is, you know, um, what we now call Samaria, uh, Joseph and Ephraim and all those tribes. And the southern kingdom is Judah. And he says, I am going to take the two sticks and I'm going to combine them together so they will be unified under David and there will be peace. And I believe Acts 8 is the beginning fulfillment of that very promise where the northern kingdom, Samaria, and the southern kingdom, Judah, are now for the first time in a long time united in the church of Christ under David, Jesus the Lord, who is the shepherd of His people. In chapter 8, verse 31, if you can just turn there in Acts 8, 31, getting to the end of this section about Samaria, says these beautiful words. Ezekiel promised peace. Here's what Acts 9, 31 says. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see here, God is keeping His promise. So, although it was surprising in some way that Samaria received the word, it shouldn't have been altogether surprising. God had promised that the stick of the northern kingdom, the stick of the southern kingdom, would be united as one again under David in those latter days when the Spirit was poured out. And when was the Spirit poured out? In Acts chapter 2. And we are in those days even now. All right, third point. Now we want to look at the surprising way the Spirit is received in Samaria. The surprising way the Spirit is received 
in Samaria. Now, I'm going to ask for your patience on this one, okay? It might not seem overly relevant to your life, but it does matter. Uh, it really does. So, hang with me here. I'm going to show you the apparent problem, and then I'm going to show you, I think, maybe five solutions to how to solve this problem. Uh, look at verse 14 to 17. This is a little bit strange. So, the people are baptized in verse 12. They believe and are baptized. Verse 12, even Simon. Now, look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them <clears throat> that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For He had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, before I introduce you to the problem, I can't help but point out this cross-reference. I find a certain irony that John was one of the two apostles picked for this task? Anyone know where I'm going in Luke? Listen to this. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, this is in Luke 9, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him who went and entered the villages of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people in Samaria did not receive Him because His face was set toward Jerusalem. And when His disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Very Christ-like attitude. But he turned and rebuked them, Jesus did, and they went on to another village. So just, what, a couple months ago? <laughs> John, last time he may have been in Samaria, one of the last times, he's with Jesus and the Samaritans don't receive Jesus in this moment. And he says, hey, let's do the Elijah thing, calling down for fire from heaven, and let's just wipe this place out. And Jesus is going... I'm trying to, you know, Jesus is so patient. If I was in his shoes, I would have reacted. I may have called fire down on John at that moment. I don't know what would happen. So John has completely missed everything there about the graciousness of Jesus. And so who gets picked? Peter and John. John's going, okay, this time I want to get this right. <laughs> and John goes to, Jerusalem, to, Samaria, to Samaria, this time to bless them, not to curse them in the name of Jesus. But now I want to talk about the five ways that this passage has been understood. I think four of them are wrong. I'm just going to be blunt. I think four of them are wrong, and, and I think actually uh, two of them are downright very dangerous. So, here's the problem. They believe and are baptized, but they haven't received the Spirit. That's strange. We think of Christianity as the moment you believe, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1. That is normal Christianity. Those who do not have the Spirit of God are not His sons. Romans 8, I think it's like around verse 9 or wherever it is in Romans 8. But those who don't have the Spirit are not truly God's sons. We have received the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. These people are believers and they're baptized, but they don't yet have the Spirit. There's at least several day gap because they had to travel and get the Word back. At least several days, maybe a couple of weeks go by between their conversion and the receiving of the Spirit. Now, let me just say first as a warning about the book of Acts. Um, one pastor, uh, Mark Dever, has said that Acts is, he thinks, the, one of the two hardest books in the New Testament to preach. I'm not sure I would say it that strongly, but, but he says it's really hard, and he said this is the reason why he thinks Acts is hard to preach. He said because it's very hard to untangle what is descriptive in Acts and what is prescriptive in Acts. Now, some of you are already nodding your head. So, descriptive means describing what happened, but not telling you necessarily to do likewise, okay? Prescriptive is like a doctor prescribing you medicine. He's saying, this is what you need to do. He's telling you what to do. And so, the book of Acts has a lot of things that are describing what happened, but not telling you to do exactly what they did. Um, 
this is not a perfect example, but this, this, this past Friday, I got asked in class a, a question about the book of Judges from one of my high school students, a good question about a horrible moment in Judges, which is really the whole book, right? Full of horrible moments. And he said, why is this in the Bible? Like, it's about this horrible story about someone gets killed and all this. And so, I said, listen, the book of Judges is primarily describing what rebellious people are doing, not prescribing, go and do likewise. And it, we tend to read the Bible as a, as a storybook to imitate the heroes. But there's a lot of messed up stories in the Old Testament, and we are not supposed to imitate a lot of these people. We're supposed to do the opposite of David's Bathsheba incident. We're supposed to do the opposite of many things that Samson and others did in Judges. Okay, not quite the same, but here there's some similarities. There are things in Acts that are once for all redemptive historic moments never to be repeated. And there are some things that we are meant to imitate. So, for instance, there's nothing wrong with having a church that meets in a home, especially in a persecuted country or if you don't have a building. But the book of Acts has exclusively house churches pretty much, right? They meet in the temple some, but it's mainly house churches. That does not mean you have to have a house church to be a biblical church. Okay, that would be an example. House church is descriptive in the book of Acts. It's not prescriptive. You follow that? Nothing wrong with it, but it's just not saying that's what you have to do. Okay, so here's where things get tricky. The Roman Catholic Church, I've got the Catholic Catechism down here on the front row if you want to come read it for yourself. The Catholic Catechism uses this text as a primary text uh, to say this. The Baptist view has several egregious errors but what, for conversion. One is this. So they believe baptism actually begins a real process of salvation. When an infant is baptized, they are filled with the Spirit. They are, to some degree, at least partially, they are cleansed of original sin and they are part of the church. And then when they become a little bit older, they are they reach confirmation. You ever heard confirmation? Confirmation they get from this passage. So here's what they say. This is their go-to text. They say, okay, you're baptized, but you don't yet have the filling of the Spirit. You haven't yet been baptized by the Spirit. And how does the Spirit come? Apostles put their hands on you. They lay hands on you and they pray, and that's how you get the Spirit. And so they have a two-part conversion. Baptism and then later confirmation. How does confirmation happen? You have a bishop, someone in the line of the, they, they claim in the, in the descendancy of the apostles, which I don't believe is true, but they would say a descendant of the apostles in some sense. They put their hands on you. They actually take anointing oil and put a cross across your forehead, and they pray over you, and that is when you are confirmed. The grace of baptism is completed, and they use this text. Number two, on a completely opposite perspective, but a similar error, I think. In, it, typically, in, in many, I won't say all, in many Pentecostal churches, uh, I'll tell you a story, there's a similar mistake here. There's something called second blessing theology. Now, if, if you don't know what that is, let me tell you, this is real. So, I, I just realized this is 10 years ago next month, it's just weird. Almost exactly 10 years ago, I was at someone's birthday party uh, as a friend of mine's mom, and uh, a Pentecostal family and wonderful people. But after the birthday party was over, I remember the mom whose birthday it was taking me aside and asking me, I could still picture it just vividly. She said, Mark, I, I know you love the Lord, but you've never spoken in tongues. I said, you got me there. And, and she said, she said, okay, she said, I, when I was first converted, I, didn't, I had not yet been given the, 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 the second blessing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. I hadn't done that. So I lived for several months or years almost like not fully there spiritually. And it's almost like you're, you're a second class or coach on the airplane. You can go first class. And so she said, Mark, I urge you, please go home and beg for the Lord to baptize you by the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. And I was as polite as I could be. And then I, I left and I, 
I didn't really pursue that route. Okay, but he, here, here's, the, this is, the, can you see, this is the go-to text for that kind of Pentecostal theology, because what happens? You have conversion and baptism, and there's a gap in time, and then there's the giving of the Spirit, and we, th- I'm almost certain they spoke in tongues, because there's, I'll, we'll talk about that next week, but I think they spoke in tongues, although it's not explicit in the text. I think that's implied, but either way, they did something demonstrably evident that the Spirit was within them. I think it was prophecy in tongues. So, they would argue this is the clear text to argue that. Now, I, I would like to give a counter-argument. So, I would say that this right here that you're witnessing is, a, is an exceptional, non-typical, once-for-all, unique situation. This is Acts, not Ephesians or Romans, okay? This is, this is something unusual. So, see if this makes sense. What makes this moment so different from today? You'll see this throughout the book of Acts. You have two covenant eras overlapping in time and space. They're not overlapping right now. The old covenant and the new covenant, aren't they kind of, there's, a, there's almost like a lag, right? You've got the old covenant coming to an end with Jesus' death and resurrection and the tearing of the temple, His ascension and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. That's the end of the Judaic aeon, right? The, that's the end of the old covenant era. And now what do you have? You have the, the new covenant, right? The new covenant era begins. And what, what you're seeing is I think the disciples, by the way, were converted before they experienced the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost, right? I think they were converted before Acts 2. What you're seeing is the Old Covenant and New Covenant are overlapping, and here's the significant point. In the book of Acts, Luke highlights that there is a unique demonstration of the Spirit, virtually always said to be with tongues and prophecy in Acts, in four moments. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. Okay, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 9. We, we will unpack these other ones when we get there, but these are massive moments in redemptive history. Here's why. Old covenant was for the Jewish people, and if you want in on that, you convert to Judaism. Ruth said, your people will be my people, your God, my God, right? She converts to Judaism. Now you do not convert to Judaism to know the Lord Jesus. You believe in Jesus, and you become an offspring of Abraham by faith, not by circumcision and all those things. So, When the Jews first convert and enter the new covenant, God signifies that that group has entered at Pentecost when only Jews were converted by pouring out the Spirit evident with tongues and prophecy, right? To show the world the Jews who trust Jesus are in the new covenant. They they know the Lord. Now, rung number two, remember Jerusalem and Judea is the southern kingdom. What's the northern kingdom? It's called Samaria here. When, when, the, when the gospel breaches into Samaria, this, this kind of half-breed, half-Israelite, half, half, half half-pagan religion, when the gospel gets there, the first time that the gospel breaches there and, and they, they repent and believe, we can't risk a divided church along those racial ethnic divides again. And what could have happened is if Samaria repented and believed under Philip, and there was no apostle from Jerusalem present, it is possible that the divide could have remained with two different Jesuses. They could have the Samaritan church following Jesus and the Jewish church following Jesus, and that would have been what? A disaster, right? In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are one in Christ. So, to prevent that from happening, God did something extraordinary. God chose in a once-for-all moment to not give the Spirit at the moment of conversion. This is a once-for-all. 
You'll never see it again. Once for all. And what happens is God chooses to get message back to Jerusalem. And two apostles who represent that church there come and put their hands on the Samaritans. Two Jewish men putting hands on Samaritans and praying. And at that moment, the Spirit comes down on the Samaritans with some kind of evidence, probably tongues and prophecy. What is God doing? He's showing that the gospel, the one true church, has now included Samaritans in Christ. And then when we get to Acts 10, the same thing's going to happen with the Gentiles. The first time a Gentile is converted, Cornelius, an apostle is present, Peter, and speaking in tongues happens. The first Gentile convert spoke in tongues to prove Gentiles are now one in Christ with Jews and Samaritans because of Jesus. And then we'll talk about Acts 19 in more detail later, but that is also uh, people who are caught back in the old covenant era and don't know what has happened in Jesus, who when they are converted, a similar thing results. So here, here's, here's my point in all the confusion of all this. We need to be careful with Acts. A lot of people have, I think, distorted biblical teaching by taking descriptive texts like this, describing once and only once redemptive historic moments and making them laws or rules that guide every church and every Christian for all of time. Now, do you see how that would be a mistake? So we need to be careful. We need to let the clear teachings, especially the New Testament letters, give us information about how to interpret some of the more debatable aspects of the book of Acts. Now, let, let me just say, uh, just, just, I got to mention two more views. And I'm going to do these fast. So, um, if I get these right here. So, G. Campbell Morgan, one pastor who's generally very good, he believes that they are um, not converted until the apostles come and put their hands on the Samaritans. That they're not actually, that they're believing in baptism were fraudulent and that they aren't. So, it's just he, one, he just thinks it's one event when the, when the Spirit comes. I don't think that's true. The other one, John Calvin, takes the opposite view. He believes they were converted and received the Spirit before it says they received the Spirit, and that, they, that the receiving of the Spirit is just about signs and wonders. It's not about the actual Spirit of adoption. Okay, I've given you four views. I think all those are, the last two are less dangerous, okay? The first two are very dangerous. Those last two are not as dangerous, but I think they're all incorrect. I think they were genuinely converted and genuinely believed. We'll talk about Simon, I think. He had some issues, but the, the, the majority of Samaritans believe genuinely, are genuinely forgiven, they're right with God, they're baptized appropriately by Philip, but there is a delay because of what God is doing in this unique moment in history in order to give them the Holy Spirit. Not to end on a trite illustration, Kevin DeYoung said, it's like your friends throw you a surprise birthday party. I thought, Where, where's this going? You have a surprise birthday party. You didn't know it was coming. Your family didn't even maybe know. Your friends throw it for you. And they've got all these presents for you, and there's cake and everything. And, you know, you, you, maybe you text or call your parents. This is amazing. And your parents are down the road. They say, don't open the presents until we get there, right? So, th you, you, you preserve that moment where everyone is present, and it can be enjoyed together. And it seems as though God, not to, again, give a trite illustration, but God says, I'm going to wait for the giving of the Spirit until representatives like the apostles from Jerusalem, can be present in order to keep the unity in the body of Christ. All right, uh, turn with me as we prepare for communion to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you are turning there, the the, the the good news just in 30 seconds that, that was being preached in Samaria by Philip is this, and this is so wonderful. Even though you and I have made a mess of our life 
and have sinned grievously against God and other people, and we owe a debt to God because of our sin that we cannot pay, there is good news. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're from Samaria, whether you're a Gentile like perhaps most of us in this room, we have made a mess of our life, and God has made a way for sinners to be made right in God's eyes because Jesus bore our judgment on the cross and rose to new life. And that's what communion is representative of. Look with me here at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I would just like to say, I say this every single time we have communion, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, first I want you to know that you are welcome here and we, are, we love that you are here to hear the gospel and we would love to meet you and get to know you. But these elements here, uh, unlike Simon's ministry, these are not ma magical items up here in the front. They will not save you or make you right with God. They are symbols of our relationship with God and what Christ has done. If you're not a believer, we would ask you to refrain from partaking of these elements. What you need is not the symbol, but the reality behind the symbol. And you can right now, even in this moment, repent of sin and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Redeemer. For those who are believers, if you are not living in unrepentant sin or out of fellowship with another believer, uh, please come forward after I pray and sit down. You can come as you desire and take of the elements and return to your seat, uh, repentant and also rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus for us. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that this cup represents your blood, which is the new covenant. Lord, we are so privileged to be part of your new covenant era in history, that we can encounter you not in a building far away, but personally with your Spirit who dwells within us and through your Word. It's just amazing that we live in a time where we have copies of the Bible that we can read personally on our own. That we, we live in a time in history where we don't have to worry about all the ceremonial laws and all the, all the clothing laws and the ritual impurity and purity laws, that we are free of those because they're fulfilled in Jesus, and we can approach you boldly, the throne of grace, to find grace and help in time of need. And Lord, thank you that you shed your blood and that you offered your body to make us right with you and that we have access to you that could really only have been imagined during so much of the old covenant era. So God, help us to rejoice in the finished work of Jesus in these coming minutes as we partake of these elements and as we sing to your honor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.